Section 22 of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Part 2. The change in his voice held a note of sadness that she had been quick to catch. Ellen, you're the only good Jorth in the whole damned lot, he said. God, I see it all now. We've dragged you to hell. Yes, Uncle Ted. I sure been dragged some, but not yet to hell, she responded with a break in her voice. You will be, Ellen, unless... Aw, oh, shut up that kind of gab, will you? broke in Coulter harshly. It amazed Ellen that Coulter should dominate her uncle, even though he was wounded. Tad Jorth had been the last man to take orders from anyone, much less a rustler of the hash-knife gang. This Coulter began to loom up in Ellen's estimate as he loomed physically over her, a lofty figure, dark, motionless, somehow menacing. Ellen, has Coulter told you yet about... about Lee and Jackson? inquired the wounded man. The pitch-black darkness of the cabin seemed to help fortify Ellen to bear further trouble. Coulter told me that Dad and Uncle Jackson would meet us here, she rejoined hurriedly. Jorth could be heard breathing in difficulty, and he coughed and spat again and seemed to hiss. Ellen, he lied to you. They'll never meet us here. Why not? whispered Ellen. Because, Ellen, he replied in husky pants, your dad and Uncle Jackson are dead and buried. If Ellen suffered a terrible shock, it was a blankness, a deadness, a slow-creeping failure of sense in her knees. They gave way under her, and she sank on the grass against the cabin wall. She did not faint, nor grow dizzy, nor lose her sight. But for a while, there was no process of thought in her mind. Suddenly it was there, the quick, spiritual rending of her heart, followed by a profound emotion of intimate and irretrievable loss and after that, grief and bitter realization. An hour later, Ellen found strength to go to the fire and partake of the food and drink her body sorely needed. Coulter and the men waited on her solicitously and in silence, now and then stealing furtive glances at her from under the shadow of their black sombreros. The dark night settled down like a blanket. There were no stars. The wind moaned fitfully among the pines, and all about that lonely hidden recess was in harmony with Ellen's thoughts. "'Girl, you're sure game,' said Coulter admiringly, "'and I reckon you never got it from the Jorths.' "'Tad in there, he's game,' said Queen, in mild protest. "'Not to my notion,' replied Coulter. "'Any man can be game when he's croaking with somebody around. "'But Lee Jorth and Jackson,' They always was yellow, clear to their gizzards. They was born in Louisiana, not Texas. Sure, they're no more Texans than I am. Ellen here, she must have got another strain in her blood. To Ellen, their words had no meaning. She rose and asked, Where can I sleep? I'll fetch a light presently, and you can make your bed in there by Tad, replied Coulter. Yes, I'd like that. Well, if you reckon you can coax him to talk, you're sure wrong, declared Coulter, with that cold timber of voice 
that struck like steel on Ellen's nerves. I cussed him good and told him to keep his mouth shut. Talkin' makes him cough, and that fetches up the blood. Besides, I reckon I'm the one to tell you how your dad and uncle got killed. Tad didn't see it done, and he was bad hurt when it happened. Sure all the fellows left have their idea about it, but I've got it straight. Colter, tell me now, cried Ellen. Well, all right. Come over here, he replied, and drew her away from the campfire out in the shadow of gloom. Poor kid, I sure feel bad about it. He put a long arm around her waist and drew her against him. Ellen felt it, yet did not offer any resistance. All her faculties seemed absorbed in a morbid and sad anticipation. Ellen, you sure know, I always loved you now, don't you? he asked with suppressed breath. No, Coulter, it's news to me, and not what I want to hear. Well, you may as well hear it right now, he said. It's true. And what's more, your dad gave you to me before he died. What, Coulter? You must be a liar. Ellen, I swear I'm not lying, he returned in eager passion. I was with your dad last and heard him last. He sure knew I loved you for years. And he said he'd rather you be left in my care than anybody's. My father gave you to me in marriage, ejaculated Ellen in bewilderment. Coulter's ready assurance did not carry him over this point. It was evident that her words somewhat surprised and disconcerted him for the moment. To let me marry a rustler? One of the hash knife gang? exclaimed Ellen, with weary incredulity. Well, your dad belonged to Daggs's gang, same as I do, replied Coulter, recovering his cool ardor. No, cried Ellen. Yes, he sure did for years, declared Coulter positively, back in Texas, and it was your dad that got Daggs to come to Arizona. Ellen tried to fling herself away, but her strength and her spirit were ebbing, and Coulter increased the pressure of his arm. All at once she sank limp. Could she escape her fate? Nothing seemed left to fight with or for. All right. Don't hold me so tight, she panted. Now tell me how Dad was killed, and who, who. Coulter bent over her, so he could peer into her face. In the darkness, Ellen just caught the gleam of his eyes. She felt the viral force of the man in the strain of his body as he pressed her close. It all seemed unreal, a hideous dream, the gloom, the moan of the wind, the weird solitude, and this rustler with hands and will like cold steel. We'd come back to Greaves' store, Coulter began, and as Greaves was dead, we all got free with his liquor. Sure, some of us got drunk. Bruce was drunk, and Tad in there, he was drunk. Your dad put away more than I ever seen him. But sure, he wasn't exactly drunk. He got one of them weak and shaky spells. He cried, and he wanted some of us to get the Isbels to call off the fightin'. He sure was ready to call it quits. I reckon the killin' of Daggs, and then the awful way Greaves was cut up by Jean Isbel, took all the fight out of your dad. He said to me, Coulter, we'll take Ellen and leave this here country and begin life all over again, where no one knows us. 
Oh, did he really say that? Did he really mean it? murmured Ellen, with a sob. I swear it, by the memory of my dead mother, protested Coulter. Well, when night come, the Isbels rode down on us in the dark and began to shoot. They smashed in the door, tried to burn us out, and hollered around for a while. Then they left, and we reckoned there'd be no more trouble that night. All the same, we kept watch. I was the soberest one, and I bossed the gang. We had some quarrels about the drinking. Your dad said if we kept it up, it'd be the end of the Jorths. And he planned to send word to the Isbels next morning that he was ready for a truce. And I was to go fix it up with Gaston Isbel. Well, your dad went to bed in Greaves's room, and a little while later your Uncle Jackson went in there too. Some of the men laid down in the store and went to sleep. I kept guard till about three in the morning, and I got so sleepy I couldn't hold my eyes open. So I waked up Wells and Slater and set them on guard, one at each end of the store. Then I laid down on the counter to take a nap. Coulter's low voice, the strain and breathlessness of him, the agitation which he appeared to be laboring, and especially the simple, matter-of-fact detail of his story, carried absolute conviction to Ellen Jorth. Her vague doubt of him had been created by his attitude toward her. Emotion dominated her intelligence. The images, the scenes called up by Coulter's words, were as true as the gloom of the wild gulch and the loneliness of the night solitude, as true as a strange fact that she lay passive in the arms of a rustler. Well, after a while I woke up, went on Coulter, clearing his throat. It was gray dawn. All was still as death. And something sure was wrong. Wells and Slater had got to drinking again and now lay dead drunk or asleep. Anyways, when I kicked them, they never moved. Then I heard a moan. It came from the room where your dad and uncle was. I went in. It was just light enough to see. Your Uncle Jackson was laying on the floor, cut half in two, dead as a doornail. Your dad lay on the bed. He was alive, breathing his last. He says, That half-breed Isbel knifed us while we slept. The window shutter was open. I seen where Jean Isabel had come in and gone out. I seen his moccasin tracks in the dirt outside, and I seen where he'd stepped in Jackson's blood and tracked it to the window. You sure can see them bloody tracks yourself if you go back to Greaves's store. Your dad was going fast. He said, Coulter, take care of Ellen, and I reckon he meant a lot by that. He kept saying, My God, if I'd only seen Gaston Isbel before it was too late. And then he raved a little, whispering out of his head. And after that he died. I woke up the men, and about sunup, we carried your dad and uncle out of town and buried them. And then Isabel's shot at us while we were burying our dead. That's where Tad got his hurt. Then we hit the trail for Jorth's ranch. And now, Ellen, that's all my story. Your dad was ready to bury the hatchet with his old enemy. And that Nez Pierce John Isabel, like the sneaking savage he is, murdered your uncle and your dad. Cut him horrible. Made him suffer tortures of hell. All for Isabel revenge. When Coulter's husky voice ceased, 
Ellen whispered through lips as cold and still as ice. Let me go. Leave me here, alone. Why, sure, I reckon I understand, replied Coulter. I hated to tell you, but you had to hear the truth about that half-breed. I'll carry your pack in the cabin and unroll your blankets. Releasing her, Coulter strode off in the gloom. Like a dead weight, Ellen began to slide until she slipped down full length beside the log. And then she lay in the cool, damp shadow, inert and lifeless, so far as outward physical movement was concerned. She saw nothing and felt nothing of the night, the wind, the cold, the falling dew. For the moment or hour, she was crushed by despair and seemed to see herself sinking down and down into a black, bottomless pit, into an abyss where murky tides of blood and furious gusts of passion contended between her body and her soul. Into the stormy blast of hell. In her despair, she longed, she ached for death. Born of infidelity, cursed by the taint of evil blood, further cursed by higher instinct for good and happy life, dragged from one lonely and wild and sordid spot to another, never knowing love or peace or joy or home, left to the companionship of violent and vile men, driven by a strange fate to love with unquenchable and insupportable love a half-breed, a savage, an Isbel, the hereditary enemy of her people, and at last the ruthless murderer of her father. What in the name of God had she left to live for? Revenge? An eye for an eye, a life for a life. But she could not kill Jean Isbel. Woman's love could turn to hate, but not the love of Ellen Jorth. He could drag her by the hair in the dust, beat her, and make her a thing to loathe, and cut her mortally in his savage and implacable thirst for revenge. But, with her last gasp, she would whisper she loved him, and that she had lied to him to kill his faith. It was that, his strange faith in her purity, which had won her love. Of all men, that he should be the one to recognize the truth of her, the womanhood yet unsullied, how strange, how terrible, how overpowering. False, indeed, was she to the Jorths, false as her mother had been to an Isabel. This agony and destruction of her soul was the bitter Dead Sea fruit the sins of her parents visited upon her. "'I'll end it all,' she whispered to the night shadows that hovered over her. No coward was she, no fear of pain or mangled flesh or death or the mysterious hereafter could ever stay her. It would be easy. It would be a last thrill, a transport of self-abasement and the supreme self-proof of her love for Jean Isbel to kiss the rim-rock where his feet had trod and then fling herself down into the depths. She was the last Jorth, so the wronged Isbels would be avenged. But he would never know. Never know I lied to him, she wailed to the night wind. She was lost, lost on earth and to hope of heaven. She had a right to neither live nor to die. She was nothing but a little weed along the trail of life, trampled upon, buried in the mud. She was nothing but a single rotten thread in a tangled web of love and hate and revenge, and she had broken.' 
lower and lower she seemed to sink. Was there no end to this gulf of despair? If Coulter had returned, he would have found her a rag and a toy, a creature degraded, fit for his vile embrace. To be thrust deeper into the mire, to be punished fittingly for her betrayal of a man's noble love and her own womanhood, to be made an end of body, mind, and soul. But Coulter did not return. The wind mourned. The owls hooted. The leaves rustled. The insects whispered their melancholy night song. The campfire flickered and faded. Then the wild forest land seemed to close imponderably over Ellen. All that she wailed in her despair, all that she confessed in her abasement, was true and hard as life could be. But she belonged to nature. If nature had not failed her, had God failed her, it was there, the lonely land of trees and fern and flower and brook, full of wild birds and beasts, where the mossy rocks could speak, and the solitude had ears, where she had always felt herself unutterably a part of creation. Thus a wavering spark of hope quivered through the blackness of her soul and gathered light. The gloom of the sky, the shifting clouds of dull shade, split asunder to show a glimpse of a radiant star, piercingly white, cold, pure, a steadfast eye of the universe, beyond all understanding, and illimitable, with its meaning of the past and the present and the future. Ellen watched it until the drifting clouds once more hid it from her strained sight. What had that star to do with hell? She might be crushed and destroyed by life, but was there not something beyond? Just to be born, just to suffer, just to die, could that be all? Despair did not lose its hold on Ellen. The strife and pang of her breast did not subside. But with the long hours and the strange closing in of the forest around her and the fleeting glimpse of that wonderful star, with a subtle divination of the meaning of her beating heart and throbbing mind, and lastly, with a voice thundering at her conscience that a man's faith in a woman must not be greater, nobler, than her faith in God and eternity, with these she checked the dark flight of her soul toward destruction. End of chapter 11, part 2